Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Um, so I do want to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 20 again. And in our series, we've been working through the book of Exodus, and, and now we are dwelling somewhat on, on uh, chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments over these uh, next weeks. So chapter 20, and this morning we're going to be considering the second commandment, but I do want to look uh, at least and read from verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then, before we turn to the preaching of the Word, I want to pray the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. So I want you bow your heads as we pray together. Thanking you, Father, for these words that we too can repeat, uh, like Paul, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May this Lord be true for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do turn to the Ten Commandments again, and I think a first-glance reading, particularly at these first two commandments, may create the impression that the second commandment is much the same as the first commandment. But if you take a closer look and, 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 and spend a bit of time on it, you can see, in fact, that there is a definite difference. So Thomas Watson, one of the older preachers from a bygone era, and I want to quote him, he says that in the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this, the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. Get the difference? Keep that in mind as we move on through this particular passage this morning. So what we see is the second commandment assumes 
the existence of God. God exists. God is. Uh, God must be worshipped. But in this second commandment, we see that there is the forbidding of the creation of any material thing supposed to represent Him in order to assist in worship. I want us to be thinking about that today in our corporate worship as we gather like this Sunday by Sunday, but also in our personal devotion and our uh, time that we spend on our own before God. So Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, to read it again, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. And again, just to continue on this difference that I want us to see is in the first commandment, we see that it focuses on the object of our worship. God is the object. God is the focus of our worship, forbidding us to worship a false god. The second commandment deals with the way in which we worship, forbidding us to worship God in an unworthy manner. And again, something that we need to consider, something we need to think about. Alistair Big, a well-known preacher, puts it in a different way, puts it positively. He says, to state this positively, it is not enough to worship the correct God. But the correct God must be worshipped correctly. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, maybe challenge us a bit, certainly would like us to be thinking about how we do things here at Central Baptist Church. Of course, looking back to understand what it stood, uh, what it meant to uh, those people, these people back in Exodus uh, 20, but, but importantly, how this is applied in our own day and practice as well. So my first point this morning, what does it mean to worship God correctly? And to help us learn and perhaps put us on a train of thought that I, I, I'm hoping will help us this morning, I want us to look at 2 Kings chapter 10, where we find a certain king, Jehu, seemingly going to great lengths to eradicate false worship. He's going to great lengths to eradicate the worship of Baal, to eliminate the worship of the wrong god. And so what he does is he orchestrates an event, calling together officers, the gods and the officers from the military, I'm guessing, and he gives them a particular command. And I want to read what he tells them. Chapter 10, verse 25, go in and strike them down. In other words, wipe them out. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the god and the officers cast them out, went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine, a toilet, to this day. Man, you think, you read that and you say, well done, Jehu, good job. What a wonderful leader, we would think. And so there's no doubt that uh, he made it clear to all the people of Israel that they should not worship the wrong God. And so at this point, it seems as if Jehu has got his act together. He's actively pursuing the first commandment. But then as we read on, another picture emerges. Verse 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. 
but it continues. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Do you get the picture? While he gets and got the first commandment right, he followed, uh, at least he failed horribly in neglecting the second commandment. He messed up by thinking that the true God, the God of heaven, the only God, could be worshipped by means of these golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. So the mistake he made in the manner of his worship Maybe we could add to that the mistake we and others can make and need to be considering do we make is to think that some kind of material object or tangible thing or definitive picture, in fact, I would like to put it in a more general sense, anything else other than God, thinking that that can be an aid to us in worship. Now, arguments for the use of objects, this is not a new debate, it's a discussion, a conversation that has been taking place down through the years. Uh, the fact, the argument is that the use of objects can facilitate, that they can be useful tools as, as means of adoration, and, and, and it's centered in the thinking that I want to expose and, and perhaps even want to challenge this morning, it's centered in the thinking that man needs something Woman needs something to help them worship God. I want to ask a difficult question. Is the nature of God, now what do we mean by the nature of God, the attributes of God, different attributes of God that we easily identify, His majesty, His glory, His greatness, His transcendence, His holiness, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, is the nature of God insufficient or incapable of grabbing your attention? Is it insufficient or incapable of stirring your heart to give exclusive devotion to God? Surely, surely God in and of himself is more than sufficient to captivate, to provoke a response of exclusive worship. That's what I want us to think about this morning. But as we do so, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. I want to uh, perhaps uh, divert a little bit now, and I want to consider problems, some of the problems with using objects as aids to worship. The first is that, the first problem is that of misrepresenting who God is. How can an inf at least how can an infinite being we know that God is infinite and eternal and God is spirit and, and how can this infinite being be accurately represented by a finite created object? It's impossible. It's impossible. Again, to quote Alistair Begg. He says it's interesting that even in the incarnation, of course that's the uh, fact of Jesus coming to this earth born as a man even in the incarnation we have no record of the physical appearance of Jesus Christ have you ever thought about that why not there's no indication whether his hair was long or short 
or he had brown eyes or blue eyes or he was five foot six or six foot two. Why? There isn't another figure that ever walked the stage of human history whose record is devoid of that kind of information. God deliberately left it out. Why? Because imagine, imagine if Jesus actually had been six foot two with dark hair and brown eyes and happened, and you, I don't know, are there any six foot two brown eyes long among us here this morning? There, there, there's the danger, there's a danger, and I think Alistair Begg has it right. He says, and, and we would be tempted, we would be tempted to somehow circumscribe deity, in other words, define God in our own little conceptions. That's what the second commandment is dealing with. Any image, even the most amazing creation, will lead the worshiper to have an inadequate view of God. It will be distorted. It will be false. It cannot represent God as he actually and really is. Problem number two, misplaced trust. There's a danger, and again, I'm using my words, I'm choosing my words carefully. There is a danger, and I want to give examples, that statues of Mary become indispensable to the worshiper of God. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. I've mentioned before, I've had the privilege of going to Israel. If you go to the Jordan River, there's a little kiosk, a number of kiosks, in fact, and you can buy bottles of water from the Jordan River. Why? Why? Do, do, do you see the, 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 the propensity that people have to, to reduce God to some kind of tangible expression? I'm sure you've read of some of the attention given to the mysterious Shroud of Turin. People queuing, people spending money thinking that somehow this would better connect them to the worship and experience of God. Burning of candles, certain types of beads, all of these things in the mind of the worshiper think uh, becoming indispensable, providing some sort of aid in having communion and being able to worship God. I understand this focus of trust then can in some measure be diverted away from God. And then there is not exclusive devotion to God. How do you trust that which is dead and useless? Even as indicated by Jeremiah, speaking of idols, and, and we can find this in many places in the Bible, chapter 10, the idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Why, why would we want to put that in place or alongside of or as a means of somehow connecting and having fellowship to God? And I want to add, because I know many of you are now thinking, we are evangelicals. No statues here this morning, are there? So we, we, we're kind of ahead in the race. But I want to take it a little bit further because I don't think we escape the danger. We too can go down the dangerous road of placing trust not so much in objects, but in activities. Activities other than directly on God. Letting the means of that particular activity actually become the end. I immediately thought of that 
song by Matt Redman. Do you know that song? Let me quote some of the words. I'll bring you more than a song because Matt Redman got to the place where he realized music was becoming an end in itself. God was not the object of his focus and devotion and worship. I'll bring you more than a song. He's confessing, Lord, what I've been doing is wrong. For a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within. And then he puts it right. And it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. When it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. Another problem I've noticed, and this perhaps in more recent years, I've become consciously aware of this particular problem, particularly in the ministry that I've been exposed to in a congregation that is more uh, multicultural, people from different nations, languages, and cultures. But I have moved around in many places, many homes in the nature of my work, and I've noticed in, in, even in some stores or shops, if you like, uh, paintings, duplicates of paintings that people have hanging on their wall, supposedly of Jesus. Have you seen that? Normally a side view. And, and how is Jesus pictured? Jesus is misrepresented as a white westerner. And what has that done? It has caused the problem of creating an unnecessary barrier to evangelism. Because I have had conversations when we've gone out onto the streets, even around this campus, with people who say that Christianity is a white man's religion. We don't want to misrepresent the gospel. Jesus was not a Westerner. Jesus was from the Middle East. But Jesus came to save people from every nation, tribe, and language. But then to move on, what then, what then does it mean to worship God correctly? I want to go to the New Testament now and uh, engage a little bit in the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. They're speaking on the topic of worship. The woman has an opinion. She expresses her opinion that uh, they, as the Samaritans, worship on a certain mountain, Gerizim, but the Jews worship in Jerusalem. In other words, in her thinking, uh, the, the, the very nature and manner of worship has to do with a place. Is it this mountain? Is it that mountain? Well, Jesus sets her thinking straight, and I obviously can't go into the too much detail, but I'm going to try and give you the, the gist of the message. In verse 23 of chapter 4 of John, But the hour is coming, says Jesus, and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so correctly worshiping God requires worshipers, it requires us who claim to be worshipers, who engage in worship with God to do so, to worship in spirit and in truth. And again, I want to try and little, uh, unpack that a little bit. You see, the vital issue is not where you worship. The issue 
that Jesus identifies very clearly and explicitly is how you worship, how you worship. And, and, and yeah, to very, uh, I think, obviously get to the place, it, it has to do with something which is uh, as a result of an inward change in an individual's life. It's not external. It's not mere ritual. The words, these words, spirit and truth, emphasize that, that true worship is not a matter of external or outward form. When John speaks of spirit, he's emphasizing that true worship is an inward reality of experiencing, and I want to pause there, experiencing, nothing wrong. In fact, it's crucial to experience the life of God through Jesus as individuals, but of course as we gather together. But then when John speaks of truth, he's not just speaking about an experience uh, that you may have or may not have, uh, an inward change of heart. He's talking about knowledge, knowing, knowing the reality of God's being definitively, if I may add that word. And, and of course, that has never been fully seen, but now has become visible through Jesus. I want to try and make that simple. Two things, two important points that I want to make. There is a subjective element to worship. A passage I read in the prayer in chapter 1 of Ephesians. I love that prayer. Paul praying earnestly for these people, yes, thanking God for them, for the work he's doing in them, the work he has done in them, that the work that, the work that God will do in them. And what is he praying? That the, the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This, this experience, this subject of this inward, this, this personal experience that we have as believers focused in on him. Paul is definitely praying here for us as believers to inwardly develop, to grow in our relational understanding of God and his will as a result of the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And so what Practically, what does that mean? It means that a worshiper must be someone who has become a new creature in Christ. Can't be a worshiper unless there's been an inward change of being made alive in Christ. It must be somebody who has repented from their sin and understanding their need of God, understanding their need of forgiveness, turned and placed their trust in Jesus as their Savior. To be a true worshiper, you must be born again. That's the subjective side. But there is an objective element to true worship. If you need something, that again is a difficult question, I think, for us to answer honestly. If you need something to help you to worship God, is that not an indication that you have an inadequate view of God? Winding up the tempo, that's the speed of the music, or winding up the volume so that people can have an experience of worship. That people can really worship. You know what I think that is? Sadly, it's an unconscious admission that God in and of himself is not captivating enough. So an important question to ask is, 
ask yourself this morning, I've asked myself repeatedly in preparation of this issue, what is it that inspires or provokes or stirs devotion for you in response to God in worship? Can I illustrate that from a rather mundane or puny example? My daughter plays hockey, plays for a school, and they do very well. But she also plays for a hockey club. And uh, I've gone on occasion on a Saturday afternoon and watched her team. And they've lost repeatedly 16-0. <laughs> By the time the second chucker is over, I want to go home. I want to take her off that field because it's, it's, it's terrible. It, 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 it's not nice to watch. I'd rather go and have a hamburger at McDonald's. Isn't that true? I mean, sometimes we were in rugby and soccer and all of those things. But you know what? Watching the World Cup, remember, and I'm an older guy, that first World Cup that we won in 1995, I still like to watch Joel Stransky kick that drop kick over the goal. Captivating, wonderful, excellence. Well, what's my point? How much more this is true, must be true, of God. We need to know God. If you don't know God, you're going to need something else to try and make you think you're worshiping God. But if you know God, and, and, and the reality is that God has revealed Himself. God has revealed Himself in the world around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the, the scriptures reveal uh, who God is. There's this progressive, unfolding truth of who God is culminating in the coming of Jesus. God with us. We can know God. Jesus saying to Philip in John 14 verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what's my point? My point is there's no need to dim the lights. No, you can dim the lights if you want to. There's no need to stoke up the fire to produce some smoke, to be inspired to correctly worship God. Just study the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit open the eyes of your understanding and you will encounter God in His majestic glory. God is more than big enough to capture your attention, to captivate your heart. He's beautiful enough, surely, in all the revelation that we're given. He's mysterious enough to drive us to, to a place of reverence and awe, and He's powerful enough to know that He's sovereign and, and, and unfolding His purposes, and He's wise enough, even in our most difficult circumstances, to know that this is God's unfolding good plan in His redemptive purposes, and He's awesome enough. The point is to captivate, to captivate, to capture hearts to worship. My second point this morning, why is it important to worship God correctly? Well, there's no need to speculate. The answer is given us in our passage. God is a jealous God. But I'm not going to rush through that topic today. I'm going to conclude my sermon. I feel that it needs attention in a particular day that we live in 
that we need to understand again the very nature of God being a jealous God and not sharing, willing to share His glory with another. So I'm going to conclude. Aren't you glad? Shorter sermon. But I've got a conclusion. Here's my conclusion. In our context, Central Baptist Church evangelicals, there wouldn't be much controversy regarding the first commandment. I think we all would agree. Exclusive worship belongs to God alone. Amen, amen. I think we all agree. I hope. When, however, we get to worshiping God correctly, opinions abound. You You may have different ideas to me regarding the way you worship, and that's okay, but for one proviso. Is God the focus? That has to be, has to be the focus. God, is God the one captivating your attention and devotion? And folks, it's a difficult question to answer because so many other things crowd around us. Is God the focus? Is God captivating your attention and devotion? Is God uppermost in your approach in worship? You see, if your primary concern is merely a certain style or type of music or a certain preferred order of service or a certain favored preacher or a specific doctrinal system, even a certain type of church, then what I see from this commandment is something wrong. Styles and orders and preachers and doctrine, dear friends, have their place. I'm all for things in their right place. But these things are never, can never be as the end or the object of our worship. God must be the one that captivates our hearts, minds, and attention and devotion. And I wondered, just as a final comment, Lord, would you help me? Would you help us at Central Baptist Church have the same kind of zeal and passion that the Apostle Paul had in Philippians chapter 3? That I may know Christ. That I may know Christ. Worship Him. Lead us, Lord, we pray, as you continue to sanctify those who are believers, conforming us more and more to your likeness, And Lord, in the light of even this passage today, thank you again for your grace in Christ Jesus. And we pray for those who are not believers. Won't you do that amazing work of creating new creatures in Christ, even among us here this morning. Those who are dead in sin, make them alive, Lord, we pray, by your Spirit. Thank you that we can participate in sharing together and rejoicing with these who will be baptized this morning. Once again, just demonstrating us to us picture of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.